Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Welcome to this week's episode. This week I have Tassos back and this is in a uh, direct contrary um, moment to the episode I did with Justin called Digital Authoritarianism. Now, Tassos, whilst being a friend of uh, mine and Justin's, um, he's written articles with Justin, we have a conversation about um, ethical cultural frameworks and why why we have evolved as um, specific countries in the way that we have and why this actually has a bit of a leaning around um, what seems to be digital authoritarianism. Um, we do have a conversation about parenting and compassion. We talk about, um, what else did we talk about? We had a really good conversation about um, the Arab Spring and how how kind of um, governments seemingly took a view that they wanted to control the internet for a reason. Um, and that was based on um, whatever was happening in that particular country. Um, it's a really, really interesting conversation and Tassos really knows his stuff. Um, we even get on to Article 13 and the dreaded uh, copyright of memes. Um, again, this is one of the things I love about um, doing this podcast is where people disagree, I'm really open to saying, come on, let's let's have a conversation about this. This is how I learn. This is how my mind gets expanded and um, I, I learn more. Um, hopefully you will enjoy this conversation. Uh, I really did. And I will see you again next time. Welcome to Cyber Synapse, and I'm joined by Tassos once more. Um, so for those of you who haven't listened, go back to season one and listen to uh, one of my favourite episodes, actually, where we kind of used a little bit of Greek mythology to talk about uh, digital space. Um, but this time, one of the things that I really like about um, putting my stuff out on the internet, Tassos, is you and Justin um, are, are, have written articles together, but also you sometimes have views that don't always uh, synchronise. So what basically happened when I put the interview out with Justin is we then ended up having a chat about some of the some of the bits that were omitted that you are now going to hopefully, we're going to have a chat about that and fill all that bit in. Um yeah, because the digital authoritarianism episode, which was about three or four behind this one, um, was really interesting. I really enjoyed talking with Justin about it. Um, but what what you actually brought to me in the messages that we were having, um, yeah, it's it's just it's so much more complicated than um, one or two one or two countries. Um, so I'm going to introduce Tassos. Um, since since we last spoke, we now have a slightly different bio for you. So you are an information security writer for Bora and you are working with Homo Digitalis, which is an NGO based around digital rights. So uh, since we last spoke, there's going to be probably lots and lots of um, more, more of a, a human overview on this in terms of... Um, Kind of last time, there was quite a lot of mythology and stories and narrative and poetry. Um, I do believe we ended up. Uh, we ended it, up yes. um, and this time, this time's going to be a little bit more to do with um, history. So, um, one of the things we discussed was, um, for example, Arab Springs. And we'll get on to that. You know that actually there's a cultural and historic element mm -hmm. to um, freedom on the internet. Um, so, where where do you want to start with this, Tassos? Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for uh, inviting me to speak again, to chat again about these issues. And uh, I want to wish to you and uh, everybody happy Easter, since we are two days away from Easter. And uh, let's start, uh, uh, let's say, where Justin has uh, left it before. And uh, Justin mentioned okay. that... Uh, Yes, Justin, uh, where Justin left off uh, and uh, he was discussing about the digital authoritarianism 
in uh, Russia and uh, China uh, versus, let's say, the global and uh, open uh, internet in the rest of, uh, let's say, the world, in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned to the emails that we exchange, I had some, let's say, objections. Uh, speaking about uh, that we have to, to see the way that these countries are regulating internet access, not only the way that, uh, let's say, it's opposing the Western pro- uh, approach uh, towards internet access, but we have to put it into a historical and cultural framework in order Excellent. to try to understand why they are doing these uh, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, we cannot, let's say, judge with the same measures people that, are the, that, that live in the uh, UK and people that live in, uh, let's say, China, or people that live in Greece and uh, they live in Russia. Because the yeah. cultural framework and the cultural background is totally different. And mm-hmm. uh, let's, let's take, uh, for example, uh, uh, Iran. Uh, Iran is a country that uh, has, of course, a very rich history. It's one of the most ancient countries in the world. Uh, their history goes back, uh, let's say, the same way as the Greek history goes back. And, uh, but they are a country of nomadic tribes. So mm-hmm. if we see, let's say, the regimes that uh, have... Uh, governed this area throughout history, we will see that we have authoritarian regimes because they were trying to, let's say, put together these different tribes with different religions. Yeah. Even today, they have a, a Sunnis and Sikhs, and, but these, uh, let's say, different people have to work together as a state. So, mm-hmm. state is, uh, let's say, a legal artifact, but uh, the governments have to be, let's say, strict enough in order to put together those different pieces of the puzzle in order to make a state work. So these countries, and here I'm not trying to justify some, let's say, violations of minorities and so on and so forth. I'm trying to understand why they are doing those things. Uh, these countries believe that if they leave the free flow of information through internet, reach every home and every citizen of their country, this, this might disrupt their, let's say, social tissue. Yeah. And uh, might lead, let's say, even to the uh, dismantling of the country. And uh, to this point, Turkey is also a fine example. Turkey has 22 million Kurds inside their territory. Yeah. Can you imagine what will happen if uh, these Kurds suddenly declare autonomy? Mm-hmm. I think it's, that's a rhetoric question, but uh, I think you get, you're getting the point. Um, yeah, so, it would be anarchy. Yes, it would be anarchy, exactly. So th- I believe that these regimes are trying to manipulate, let's say, the information flow for the sake of their country. I'm not saying that this is right or this is wrong, but it might be, let's say, a way to understand why they are doing those things. The same happens, I believe, for China, the same is true for Russia, and for other countries as well in the globe. Because it's not only Russia or China or Iran or Turkey. We have a lot of countries around the globe, around the world, that are following, let's say, the Chinese model. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm just thinking here. When 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 I interviewed Justin, we talked about. So I'm I'm going to veer away from this word digital authoritarianism because mm-hmm. I really like the article. Um, and what I'll do is I'll put the article at the bottom um, in the show notes for people to go and read. But you did you did an article in December that you called it the digital deciders. Now that that sounds a bit more. Um, democratic rather than authoritarian doesn't it in terms of the the way that you framed that actually we do have to decide and it it has to be based on a country's ethics morals religion and history and that actually what you're saying right now is is this hasn't been done because people are saying right you you don't have freedom to the entire internet 
what you do have is what we need to function as a state and and if we didn't do this then what would happen is I, and I'm just drawn to thinking about an anthill and I don't know why this image has just come up in terms of the anthill that actually if, if the ant workers decided to just disappear off and stop working the anthill wouldn't actually be there in its function and you know that that's the way that ants work is everybody has their job everybody has to comply and and form uh, a beautiful synchrony of um connections so that you can get the anthill and and the underlaying foundations and and you're saying and if if autonomy was to happen that would be like the lone ant disappearing off and then before you know it there's a new colony across across the road with a new anthill exactly exactly yeah. uh, going back to the term deciders yes deciders implies that there is a kind of let's say more democratic way to approach uh, internet access or internet regulation because if you give the people or the states the choice to decide how to regulate internet uh, then uh, we might end up with a more democratic internet and i think this is what uh, tim berners lee also was mentioning in his uh, Magna Carta of Internet that he published in, uh, in webfoundation.org. Uh, he was saying that uh, Internet is already, let's say, uh, fragmented and it's uh, polluted with manipulation, information manipulation, with uh, fake news, although I don't like this term, it's, let's say, subjective. Uh, disinformation and phishing campaigns and privacy violations and so on and so forth. And he was saying, we, uh, we need a more democratic internet, an internet that respects the rights of, the, of their users, of the citizens, respects their privacy, their freedom, and of course, their uh, freedom of speech. Yes. It sounds very much, um, well, I'm going to use the, the two words now, it sounds very corporeal in a digital space, because actually this is exactly what human beings do. And, you know, we, we have... We have these laws called the, for, um, so when I'm working, I tend to talk about the UN Convention's rights of the child. So the child has the freedom to, but that, that also then means, but we need to then have a, a, a system that also protects the child, which may mean at times that those uh, rights are restricted rather than, you know, diminished, squashed and stamped all over. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is, you know, it is a democracy. We are talking about, people's rights to share what they believe is the truth, even when it might come under the framework of disinformation. Exactly. Um, you know, okay, there are a lot of uh, issues that pop up in uh, the discussion. You mentioned about, let's say, children, uh, rights of children, uh, children's rights. And this brought me to my mind the parenting issue that you were speaking with uh, Justin. The, let's say the uh, correlation between regulating the internet and parenting. Um, yeah. I have one question. If I have five children, okay, yeah. if I am a strict uh, parent and am I authoritarian or am I caring for my children and I want to protect them from doing something wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, if you want a therapist answer, what I would say is actually, um, so I really like transactional analysis for this. So in, in our parent ego state, we actually have two sides. One side is nurturing and one side is critical. Mm -hmm. and both of these sides have positive and negative aspects to them. So you can be a, a critical parent, which is, it sounds very authoritarian, and that criticalness can be given with an intention for a positive outcome or it can be critical, which is uh, ridiculing, humiliating, shaming. And, and conversely, the nurturing side can be done where it's, um, I think the phrase we use in, in the United Kingdom is mollycoddle or, or wrapping up in cotton wool. You know, so it can be smothering, whereas the, the kind of nurturing parent that I, I see myself being is the one that quite often gets called liberal. So I'm nurturing and I say, you know, I've told you the fire's hot. If you want to put your hand on it, you're going to get burnt. But what I'm going to allow you to do is go close enough to recognise that it is warm, but I'm not going to allow you to actually burn yourself. Mm 
So it's all about you get, yes. to, test, you get to test the boundaries, but I, I, I'm nurturing enough to not actually allow you to do something that would hurt yourself. If that exactly. makes sense. Okay, but uh, you know, I used this metaphor in order to try to, uh, let's say, put something more let's say, tangible for a lot of people. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, going back to the discussion about, uh, you know, uh, social tissues and the uh, functioning of states, uh, we have the Arab Spring uh, example, 2011. Yeah. We all know that uh, the Arab Spring movement was, let's say, fueled by social media. I mean, by the exchange of uh, information and opinion, mostly of the youngsters through social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Uh, I believe that uh, governments across the world have le learned a lesson from Arab Spring. And the lesson was that if uh, they do not, let's say, Uh, not manipulate, but if they do not, let's say, monitor what is being said on uh, the social media, then they will be in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to be, let's say, an oracle of bad news, but, uh, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I think that governments took their lesson from Arab Spring and yeah. they're not only monitoring social media, they are manipulating the information through social media mm -hmm. yeah because i'm just i was just going to pick up did i let you see earlier on today i've actually put something to one side on one of my tabs uh, that i thought i would come back to <laughs> and i can't <laughs> find where i've put it um, oh yes so where was i looking du -du 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 -du. yeah I've actually got some uh, yeah it was to do with um kind of what what Arab Spring yeah where where it was contextually country-wise because I thought one of one of the things that I don't know and, and I'm not saying that my listeners and, and viewers don't know or don't understand this it was um just a little bit of contextual information about what what the Arab Springs comprised of so it was it was a set I mean the the clue's pretty much in the title isn't it um in terms of where, where this happened, but it was countries like um, Turkey, as you've spoken about. But uh, no, Arab Spring was uh, Tunisia, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, yeah, yeah. Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and last, uh, Syria. Yeah. And uh, Tunisia was uh, smooth, okay, no problems at all. Libya, we all know what happened. Egypt, we had uh, the Muslim brothers uh, in the beginning, and then we had uh, a coup, And now we have a Sisi and Syria. We all know what happened. Um, yeah, because, small, let's say, commentary on uh, the political. Yeah, what, what I'm trying to find as, as I was talking was I picked up on, on something earlier on today and I'm, I'm going to either get lost in trying to find something on my tabs and then stop this conversation, which wouldn't be helpful. Mm -hmm. But the actual timeline in which it happened was rather, rather quick, wasn't it? Yes, it um, was very quick. Yeah. It was and very I, quick. Yeah, that's that's the part that I thought would be really interesting in terms of. Um, so when when these uprisings do actually occur, you see, in in the United Kingdom, we had the riots happened within London, mm -hmm. and what what I noted was it was a very similar time timeline and time frame. So I was just thinking for people who were were unaware really of yeah what this was and how it happened. Um, I mean, I, I would say go Google it. Because that's pretty exactly. much <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what what you will come across, um, and it was it was in the early parts of the year, wasn't it? Which is why we have this kind of um, language etymology. If you, do I want the word etymology? I'm not sure. Um, where it's that's where we've got the word spring from as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I have uh, read a very nice article in uh, the MIT Technology Review, the, this very fine magazine. Uh, it was written by Zeynep Tufekci. She is of Turkish origin, a professor in uh, MIT. She was saying that uh, uh, what we had prior to the Arab Spring is uh, that social media was the weapon of the citizens. Uh, after the Arab Spring, social media is the weapon against the citizens. 
course, a weapon of the governments against the citizens. Yeah. That was a very, very nice, let's say, motto. <laughs> yeah. How out, how out, though? In in terms of, I'm just thinking about how how it's now spoken about actually by young people in terms of this is how this is how quite often they perceive social media that it's being used against them as well as them using it for themselves mm-hmm. it's it's got a double bind pretty much but, yeah pretty much like free speech mm-hmm. exactly but I, I think to let's say to go back to our previous discussion i think what the government's learned from uh, the arab spring was that they need to regulate somehow the access of their citizens to internet. And since uh, most citizens are, let's say, publishing content in social media, this is what they are focusing on. You know that in Turkey, Twitter is forbidden. You cannot access Twitter in Turkey. And yeah. in China, they have built this uh, great firewall and they have their own uh, social media, whatever, uh, applications. In Russia, they have their own search engine. They don't have uh, Google search. They have uh, Yandex. Uh, no, that's in China. Uh, whatever it's called in Russia. Uh, these are, let's say, their offenses against what they presume is their, the enemy of their state. Mm. Yes. And this, I'm, I'm just thinking about this word decider so actually what what they have done is they've said actually we we will allow you access to almost to anything that won't allow the autonomy mainly because we're and and it sounds like quite a fear-driven response about we're frightened of the the impact of what happened you know when we've when we look back at history and we go hmm we didn't put things in place for that and we didn't put things in place for that and that's actually how we learn isn't it we we then say okay right now the new boundaries are this Mm-hmm. So it's exactly. about, it's it's got the intention to have safety behind it. That's that's yes. what I do here. Now, whilst that feels like it is, and I'm going to go back to that authoritarian parenting. Um, so with Justin, I think I've said, but so when you are an authoritative parent, what you do find is that your children will then rebel because of the authority, whereas mm. that authority needs to be uh, slightly fluid. And that's about safety, as you said earlier. It, it might be perceived as, you know, very restrictive, but actually it's about trying to protect. Yes. Uh, to use, let's say, a UK example, you mentioned in your previous podcast that in UK the, you have, let's say, filters, to put it like this, to mm-hmm. block pornographic, let's say, content. Is it uh, authoritarian, this one? No. It's just protecting, let's say, innocent children from viewing Mm-hmm. this kind of content yes yeah well, and, and that's been done because it was it was pretty much the phrases you know the horses the horses already bolted um, <laughs> yeah it was a little bit late in coming because actually what people didn't do was think about the consequence and this happens a lot with technology I've noticed that that we, mm. we make something we say oh look at this system and then we go oh dear that's how that's how it can be used negatively or for mm-hmm. harm Okay, you, you remind me of something that I have written, something uh, about Mary Aiken. Mary Aiken is a professor in yeah. Dublin, and she's the author of uh, Cyber Effect. Cyber Effect, yeah. An excellent book for everybody to read. She said uh, in an article lately that what we are witnessing is the biggest unregulated social experiment she was referring to internet. And uh, she actually implied that we need somehow to regulate this stuff. Because uh, we don't know yet the consequences of uh, this experiment. We don't know what is going to be the outcome of this this experiment. So we need somehow to take some precautions, not not to have, uh, let's say, uh, uh, extortions, (laughs) not to have... uh, uh, monster babies uh, being born from this experiment. Um, yes, I think I've I think I've actually said that in a few a few episodes that this is the biggest the biggest human experiment we've ever conducted. Mm-hmm. And we didn't did, we haven't? And I'm going to talk like a researcher now. We didn't put the uh, the variables in place. We didn't put the controls in place. What we said is, oh, this looks br- brand new and shiny. Let's put it into production. Oh shit look at what's happening and and for me 
that's that's where my um, theory of cyber trauma came from in in 2012. So you know, eight years ago, I was looking at, oh my word, people have not considered the impact of X Y Z. Um, and what, what I see is where technology does advance. And whilst I do, I do see that the positives of exponential technology, I think one of the things I always say is I go, yeah, ah, oh. and it's uh, before I've even got to the full crescendo of being happy about something, I've already begun to thought, think, how will this present in my therapy room? What will now happen to children who are engaging with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I get both excited and debilitated by the advances in technology because I've, I've watched my children growing up with it and I've seen, you know, how things have changed. And we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with their, their brains, their cognitive abilities, mm-hmm. but I do know that there will be positives and there will be negatives. For sure. Mm. And, uh, okay, I'm trying to, let's say, keep a little bit with my thoughts. Uh, we spoke about the Arab Spring, we spoke about uh, this unregulated social experiment. Mm-hmm. And, but going back to the authoritarian, let's say, nature of uh, some uh, policies, uh, shall we speak about the Five Eyes Alliance? You know, Five Eyes Alliance, the five countries that are trying to place backdoors to the encryption, you know, uh, now that we are discussing, there is an encryption between you and me. Yes. Uh, and this encryption, uh, let's say, uh, makes sure that uh, whatever we are discussing is the way that we are discussing it. And nobody else is, uh, let's say, changing the flow of information between you and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, these five countries, which are, for those that they don't know, is the uh, United States, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand, and all of them belonging to the open and global part of the internet. Yes. Five countries, uh, they try to persuade uh, voluntarily, okay, this is conflicting, <laughs> but they try to persuade the big companies to voluntarily open uh, backdoors to the encryption in order to have, let's say, lawful access. And, uh, but of course, all the big companies are uh, objecting this one because they say, okay, once I open a backdoor, this, op- this backdoor is going to be open for everybody, not only for you governments, but for every malicious uh, actor in uh, the whole internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this another kind of surveillance? Who knows? Well, there is, there is something about, I'm not so sure that we entirely know and I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I'm not at all. I'm not so sure that we entirely know who's watching us at all times and who has um, access to a lot of stuff. So um, I'll go back to in therapy when I'm when I'm talking with a lot of the children and they talk about the tour browsers. And and I say, you, you do know who these people, you know, you do know who they were invented by, don't you? You know, they weren't they weren't just made by um, some 14 year old hackers <laughs> I believe actually that we are being um, tracked monitored closely watched and I'm not just talking about on the internet as well I believe that it happens um, you know even walking around on CCTVs I do believe that we there's lots of information collected about us and that that says to me that we're in an even bigger social experiment than most people think I don't think it's just related to the internet I think it's it's about everything that we do uh, that reminds me of, uh, I don't remember now the name of uh, the professor, but I think it's the term surveillance capitalism or surveillance economy, something like this, mm-hmm. that we are living. I'm just very cynical, Tassos, that's all it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, uh, you said something that uh, uh, about uh, being, let's say, 100% deconstructable and so on. You know, in security, we say there is nothing 100% secure. No. So that's, that says everything. I, absolutely, doesn't it? And it, it, it could make you, as a, as a human being, it could make you very, very cautious. It could make you very frightened or it could make you very aware. So, for example, uh, I was t- uh, the interview I did last week, um, not, not for my podcast, was about the information standard that I've set up for therapists. And I said, mm-hmm. now I, t- I take my privacy and security very seriously because the, the terminology that I use to search for my PhD, 
I would not like that putting out on on the internet, you know, um, because it would stop me practicing as a therapist because people would be looking going, oh my goodness, look at all of that macabre stuff that she's looking at. And then I may not get a, a client after that. So I take my my security very seriously, but I'm also aware that when I do put this terminology in, it actually probably changes my filter bubble, if you like, to mm. certain certain kinds of um, yeah macabre stories and uh, what, what I see on my newsfeed. Exactly, mm. uh, we know that. We have seen that a lot of times. Even if you block, let's say, whatever, if you enable whatever privacy settings that are available in uh, Windows or in Android or whatever, mm-hmm. you understand eventually that somehow a small percentage or a bigger percentage of whatever you are doing is being leaked back to, let's say, somebody in the cloud and uh, the feed that you're getting back is, let's say, personalized. Well, this is, I think, this is the fear of most people about AI and machine learning is they think that mm. it's the AI that's going to collect all of this information and then there'll be an uprising of the bots. <laughs> okay, <know>? big issue. <laughs> big issue, AI and machine learning. Yes, I know. Uh, we have to be cautious about when speaking about AI and machine learning. You know, it's not, uh, first of all, it's not a kind of magic. To paraphrase a little bit uh, Queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not a kind of magic and uh, f- that's uh, the one thing that we have to remember and the second thing that we have to remember is that uh, AI is not let's say artificial at all it's purely human beings we are constructing the algorithms we are feeding the data and we are let's say uh, making use of the results of uh, those algorithms so as uh, a professor, Fei Fei Li, uh, stated, it's bias in, bias out. That's simple. I, absolutely. I, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed talking with uh, Justin because mm-hmm. I think for, for me, when I do talk to a lot of uh, my friends, my family, they, they, don't quite, they don't always understand machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And they seem to think that it is um, its own autonomy and uh, autonomous uh, thinking being. And I say, no, who do you think bloody taught it? Who do you think sat down and went, this is what I want you to do? And actually, that's what we do with our children. Mm -hmm. So we can't even produce self-thinking children until they are at least 12 to 25. We're not going to do very well with machines. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I like the way that we are moving from technology to parenting and then backwards. (laughs) Yes, the analogy is very nice. (laughs) But... Uh, if something needs to be remembered from this discussion, apart from all this uh, geopolitical, historical, cultural, let's say, discussion, is that uh, AI is biases. Algorithms, data, and biases. That's it. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, AI is not good, of course. Uh, We have seen very good uh, applications of AI and machine learning in... uh, in uh, medical, for for instance, for ca- cancer prevention, uh, in uh, let's say even in crim- criminology, I have read uh, somewhere that the uh, FBI is using AI to better track missing uh, children. Uh, but uh, okay, that's the good part of the story, and there is also the other part of the story. We have mm-hmm. to be cautious and aware at the same time yeah. that when we speak about AI. We have to remember that behind AI is data created by people, algorithms created by people, and uh, as long as the data are good, then let's say the outcomes are good. But if the data that are inserted into the algorithms are not, let's say, complete, the, if the data are biased, then we have uh, terrible results. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, absolutely, and I'm just thinking about this is this is also the same with how how children understand. Uh, and I'm just thinking about that statement about misinformation. And this is also going back to the the right at the beginning of this when we talked about the digital deciders. That actually, mm-hmm. if that biased decision 
that then produces the information that other people then learn from. So I'm just thinking the cascade always comes from a decision made from, uh, you know, human thinking, which in itself is biased and has many flaws and errs on, errs on the background of politics, of their upbringing, of history, of, you know, how, how people view the world. So it's, it's a complete circle, no matter which way we're looking at this, whether it's the machines doing it or humans. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We are bringing our, let's say, we are hard coding our own DNA into technology. Yeah. Yeah, and, oh, I, quite, I quite like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I have read it somewhere, but I don't remember where. <laughs> I, uh, you, and I, you and I suffer with the same uh, affliction here then, Tassos. We read so much. Um, it's, it's almost like I can't remember where I read something earlier on today and whether it was on the internet or whether I'd saved it in a bookmark. And, mm-hmm. and I, to be perfectly honest, this is happening with my PhD across... And I just go, I don't know where I've read it and I really need to take notes and... Okay. And uh, speaking about, uh, let's say, to continue the discussion about uh, authoritarianism in the internet, um, you know, some may say that we have two kinds of internet in, uh, in the world. Let's say the Western internet and the Chinese internet, to put it simply like this. But uh, what about the uh, European Union? What about Europe? Not to put it only European Union, because, okay, we have uh, the... The series uh, episode number 46 with uh, Brexit. I don't understand it. We'll just leave it at that. So okay, let's, yes, we'll leave it. Okay, what about Europe? Europe is making some, uh, let's say, a lot of good steps towards, let's say, regulating internet and content and privacy and so on and so forth. I think. Uh, Everybody is trying to, let's say, pick up some good stuff from the European regulation and the European directives. But on the other hand, we are making mistakes. And one mistake is uh, the famous uh, Article 13 of uh, the Copyright Directive uh, yeah. that uh, was uh, recently, let's say, voted by the European Parliament and the European Commission. Uh, I think you have heard a lot of debate about this uh, article. Um, yes, uh, mainly, mainly what, what does end up being spoken about the most is uh, memes. Yes. So, you know, whether we can use memes or not anymore and, and you know. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not only memes because uh, uh, this, uh, let's say, this uh, article is implying that uh, at least the big sites, the big websites, they have to have some kind of filtering to, let's say, monitor whatever is being shared on their, let's say, website to see if it is in accordance with this directive or not. Uh, That's uh, technically impossible. And uh, also the debate, except apart from the memes, is that, okay, what happens if this kind of filter is also a censorship filter? Yeah. Nisi, mm. what what what, mm, what cropped up for me just a moment ago, Tassos, was I do remember. Um, oh, it's, it's over 10 years ago. I worked in a gaming company, and one of the things that we did, or we did, I ended up doing quite a lot, was I would have to sit and go through all of the gaming websites, all of the basically anywhere that might be selling a game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I was looking for people who were essentially ripping off uh, the content that was. Um, on on this particular website so we we were kind of looking for this copyright thing and it was laborious um and then it became then it became something that you know we moved into watermarks the watermarks didn't always work because people would then take them off and then it got into this place where um what they would say is right okay so this this website can't see anything until this day so i'm just thinking about rather than censorship we had these these embargoes as well but Yeah, I, I'm just seeing how it would transition into right. So, this can now no, no longer be looked at. Never mind about the copyright and. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, the, the the directive as a whole, let's say, moves to the right direction. Okay, mm. the creators of the content have to be somehow protected. Yes. But uh, there are also some, let's say, tricky points inside this directive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you like to expand on the tricky points? Or <laughs> as I said before, 
As I said before, uh, you know, uh, I was, let's say, a little bit involved with uh, Homo Digitalis uh, speaking about this uh, Article 13. And, uh, you know, there was a big campaign from various NGOs across Europe uh, saying that, okay, this, uh, this article is not only trying to protect the intellectual rights of the content creators, but if the algorithm that is going to be behind this filtering whatever machine is biased somehow, then we might end up with uh, blocking uh, content that uh, otherwise should be available on the internet. And that's why you have uh, YouTube is as one of the most, let's say, critical opponents of this uh, Article 13 because uh, they fear that they will lose their job. If uh, YouTubers and vloggers uh, cannot publish their content, then YouTube cannot, doesn't have a reason to exist. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in the academic world, we have the, the plagiarism. And there is a, a beautiful machine which most academics are aware of. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. um, it, to me, it almost sounds like um, the Daleks on... Um, <laughs> on Doctor Who or I don't know some sort of cyborg and it, you know it's called turn it in which is quite aggressive um most people don't say it like that I just sit like that I've got to feed it to a robot and the robot will tell me you know whether whether essentially this work has been seen elsewhere mm-hmm. but also something about but that's how thinking evolves as well um, so my thinking comes from reading lots and lots of um, journals and I will look at what somebody's written and then I will put it into my own words. So if if we were to take this Article 13 to the nth degree, technically nobody's ever had an original thought because we're all thinking what other people have thought and then, you know, expressing it in our own ways. But the direct, um, and I, what's the word I want here? So if, if we take something verbatim, and we copy it, then you know that's that's slightly different. I'm I'm aware in in the last what nine ten years, whenever I've gone out and I've I've taught, I know that my slides get plagiarised and they get copied and they get used and 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 I've seen people actually copy my um, my talks on trauma, and and I've kind of gone that's really interesting, but there's also something about it's not it's not entirely my intellectual property. Because mm-hmm. those ideas that I come up with actually come from other researchers and other books and other people who I'm then emulating. So I do, I do feel, yeah, absolutely on the side of it's totally what we should be doing in terms of copyright because people's intellectual property is their intellectual property. But at the same time, I also think, but hang on, how do we, how do we disseminate ideas if we keep it behind a paywall and we don't allow people to copy? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, that goes back to freedom of speech. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you cannot express yourself and uh, you have uh, always been regulated somewhere, okay, where is your freedom? Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, uh, again, going back to the previous, let's say, the main uh, topic of our discussion, do we have uh, freedom of speech in the internet? Hmm. Good question. Eh? Uh, well, if you look at if you look at what happens sometimes on, uh, and I'm going to go with Twitter because you mentioned it earlier. Um, but if if you look at what happens on Twitter, no, not necessarily so, because mm-hmm. even Twitter has its own regulation and and so on. But then there's other countries who won't allow Twitter. It so even one social media platform, there there isn't the ability to have 100% freedom of speech. Yes, even within the same country, I believe, we don't have a freedom of speech. For instance, if uh, you say something that, uh, let's say if I say something and uh, it's totally different from what you believe, and you start uh, putting names uh, like uh, you are, let's say, racist or you are uh, uh, whatever, extra right, uh, far right and whatever, is this a freedom of speech? Of course not. we have lost, let's say, the ability to accept the different uh, opinion. Mm-hmm. And as long as we cannot accept a different opinion, then we don't have a freedom of speech. Well, to be perfectly honest, Tassos, the number of times I've sat and I've, gone, I've, I've been almost ready to say something on this podcast, and I've, I've kind of stopped myself. So there was a, an episode last year where somebody said, well, I don't believe in um, gender fluidity and so on. 
and and I I had to say, well, that's your opinion. I don't necessarily share it, mm-hmm. but actually, I understand as a human being, one human being to another, just because I have a difference of opinion does not mean that we can't have a conversation. Um, but I do self-regulate quite often in terms of some of the things that I might say that might be construed as racist, um, xenophobic, because I'm I'm I mean let's let's just go with what's happening here. I'm talking to somebody who lives in Greece, and somebody might decide that that's you know, oh look at you, Kath, you only talk to Europeans, or you only talk to people from America, or you only talk. Doesn't really matter what we do. Somebody can at some point take offence in it and then we become restricted by people's um, internal needs to be validated and I do find that sometimes that's where it gets mixed up with kind of the freedom of speech is I don't like what you said and whilst I'm in a place that's hurt what I'm going to do is accuse you of being something ist towards mm-hmm. me and my opinions. Exactly but uh, this uh, going back to history you remember uh, French Revolution Uh, who was the one that said, uh, I don't agree with your opinion, but I will... Uh, um, uh, I will fight to the death to have your opinion being heard. I don't remember the name of uh, the guy that that, said that. Uh, me neither. I don't really... St- I can tell you I didn't pay much attention to the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, we have to respect others' opinion because yeah. uh, otherwise, okay, we can uh, sit in front of the mirror and uh, talk to ourselves. The mirror is always going to agree with us. <laughs> yeah, I I actually had... Um, so so a lot, a lot of the time I will work with clients who say stuff which, you know... As a therapist, I'm sat listening and, and I do find it quite provocative at times. And there's also something about, but I in, in transactional analysis, and I'm going to come back to this theory, we have this position where I'm okay and you're okay. And even if you disagree with me, I I fully believe that everybody's okay, regardless, you know, and, and quite often I get into heated debates with family members when they say, but that's not how we were brought up or that's not what we do. And I, I will answer with, well, what do you mean by we? Because when we start to do this in-group, out-group, them and us, and, you know, we start to see people with difference of opinions as subhuman or we give them characteristics which make them different to us, then we're not being very compassionate. Mm-hmm. And I, I do come from quite a compassionate place that says, and your opinion is different to mine, but that doesn't make you any less of a human than I am, nor, nor do I see you as less of a human. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, but not everybody's like that on the internet. I am fully aware. Yes, and uh, the other problem is uh, with uh, this let's say, issue is that uh, we tend always to use terms for whatever reason, let's say, like hate speech. I don't agree with you, this is hate speech. And, uh, you know, this kind of terminology has lost its meaning, and that's a problem. Yes. If uh, everything is hate speech or everything is, let's say, ism, as you said before, then mm-hmm. what is, uh, let's say, Racism. What is xenophobia? Uh, well, I, I'll tell you what I will do. <laughs> in, um, in when I was in the army, um, and I'm not going to use the words here, but you tend to use a certain swear word a bit like a comma in a sentence, and and what it does do is it loses its impact. And I can be sat talking to people who have been in the forces, and they f and Jeff and use this particular word a lot. And I'm I'm not offended by it because for me it lost its meaning many many years ago. It does not have the the curt um, yeah the curt sharpness to it, and it's not an offensive word to me. Um, mm-hmm. Very very few words are actually because there's something about and that's that's what happens that they've lost their ferocity and they've lost their impact. And for me, this is what I think is happening with language at the moment. The semantics have gone out of it. And actually, when when you take it down to what what it is that people are saying, I tend to see people saying, I don't like what you've said, so I'm going to use a term that makes you feel inferior. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it's going to be one of these terms that we think um, we, we ought to be, and I think that the phrase is like politically correct around. So we'll say things like, oh, you can't you can't use that word and you, you mustn't say that in that space. And, and don't forget, when you're talking to this group of people, you must use this terminology, but you don't use that terminology. And somebody the other day on an interview said, guys, 
and afterwards somebody said to them you know you were talking to females as well as males so guys is a little bit and I, I just thought well that was an endearing term that this person had in their mind exactly people and yet I watched somebody say well you can't say that he, he or she didn't pay attention to what the other guy was saying he she I, I think it was she she, she stuck to the, this one word mm-hmm. <laughs> yes yeah and and I think that the 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 kind of parallel here is this is where the internet gets regulated and sometimes I think it gets regulated in the wrong domains mm-hmm. there are things that are not humanity plus and I think if if we looked at what was humanity plus versus what was humanity negative or humanity minor however you want to say it we might regulate in a way that was based more in compassion than in divide and hate and and I don't know discord Yes, and uh, this uh, note brings us back to what uh, Berners-Lee said about uh, that internet is, let's say, broken the way it is uh, today, and that we need to move to a more democratic uh, internet, which one which respects humans, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that might be a fantastic place to. I mean, I, I think Tim Berners Lee goes to sleep on the nighttime crying. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> what, I think there's a part of him that goes, "This is not what I intended." But <laughs> humans, humans are humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, yes, the internet needs regulating in a more democratic and human human way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's a very good. Uh, let's say. Um, let's say a title for our discussion <laughs> absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. well thank you for giving your time up again Tassos and thank you for another fantastic conversation and thank you very much uh, Catherine yeah and whilst whilst there are disagreements with how um, Justin and I talked about this topic I've really really enjoyed taking the cultural historical political aspect and you know the democracy of what we need to do this is exactly what I talk about you know um if I decided that I only wanted to listen to Justin's point of view we would never have had this conversation mm-hmm. and I, as I said in the message I love it I love it when this happens when people say can I talk to you in this way because actually I disagree with and here's my view and you know this is how I learn my my thinking gets bigger yes and uh, not to confuse uh, the, let's say the listeners of our uh, discussion uh, I, I I really respect and admire Justin. He's oh. a brilliant guy. He's a friend of mine, although I've never met, met a, let's say, in person. And uh, you had to be in one corner when we were debating our uh, articles that we have uh, co-authored. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Google Docs, uh, let's say, were full of uh, you know notes and uh, debates, and uh, maybe we have to say this and not this. But yeah. he's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant guy. And I'm very lucky that I know him. Yeah, and, and myself, I am so glad I got to meet both of you and, and get to have these kind of conversations. So thank you ever so much. You're, you're welcome, Cathy. Happy Easter. This podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.